you are transferred by God out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. The moment you were converted, you became a part of that kingdom. You are in Jesus' spiritual kingdom. But if you are in Jesus' spiritual kingdom now, you will be in His literal kingdom that's coming. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom begins a new four-part series titled A Vision of the Exalted Christ. Throughout this series, we'll look at the vision of Jesus Christ found in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. You might just be struck by how different this vision of Jesus is compared to how he is revealed in the gospel accounts. Here, Jesus is revealed in all his power, glory, majesty, and might. As we examine this remarkable vision of our risen and exalted Lord, you'll be reminded of just exactly who he is, and you'll discover Jesus Christ's primary location of activity and concern, his church. Well, Tom, what are some of the ways we can prepare our hearts and minds to engage well with this series? You know, Bill, I would just encourage every listener to really engage with this passage as though you'd never heard it before. There are things that we're going to learn that, that I'm confident have not been clear in the past, and, and yet they're so powerful. I think it's also important to remember that as we study this, we're going to learn that the church of the first century, they had the same problems that you and I are dealing with. They faced the same struggles, some of the same problems politically in the world at large. The world has always been in a state of chaos and confusion. But the good news is Christ and his kingdom will remain. And Christ is in charge. He's in charge of the planet and he's in charge of his church. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher right now on The Word Unleashed. Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. At the end of the first century, living under the reign of Domitian, the Christians alive at that time desperately needed to be reminded, reminded that Jesus Christ our Lord had not abandoned His church. He had been gone for some 65 years, and the circumstances had gone from bad to worse. Christianity had become despised. Tacitus, the Roman historian, said that Christians were, quote, hated for their abominations, end quote. Pliny called Christianity, quote, a depraved and extravagant superstition. The Romans actually referred to Christians in the first century as atheists because they rejected the pantheon of Roman gods and instead worshipped an invisible god. Christians were even blamed for natural disasters. You know, some things never change. Christians get blamed for everything. And they were blamed for natural disasters because they refused to acknowledge the gods of Rome. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers who lived and ministered in the third century, wrote this, if the Tiber, the river there, reaches the walls, if the Nile does not rise to the fields, if the sky doesn't move, or the earth does, if there is famine, if there is plague, the cry is at once, Christians to the lions, end quote. Christians were 
considered disloyal to the state for their refusal to accept emperor worship and to acknowledge the lordship of Caesar. And of course, the the man on the throne was one of the worst that Rome produced. The emperor Domitian was not like his father, Vespasian, nor his brother Titus, both of whom had ruled before him. Instead, Domitian was a, a cruel, vindictive little man. He demanded emperor worship and was especially angered at the Christians who, to a man, refused to do so. So he initiated official state persecution of Christians. It reached throughout the empire, including to Asia Minor, modern Turkey. There, even the apostle John was swept up in the persecution, and he was exiled to Patmos. The believers in the churches where John had previously ministered throughout that area, they needed to be reminded that Christ was still on his throne, that he hadn't abandoned his people or his promises, and that he was still head of the church. That's the context in which the Apostle John was granted one of the few biblical visions of God himself. There's Isaiah 6, there's Ezekiel 1, And Revelation 1 ranks as one of the greatest of the visions of God. And it is our privilege to examine it together tonight. Now let me just remind you of the outline of this book as far as where we are so far. Jesus' words in chapter 1 verse 19 provide a natural framework for the book. Therefore write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. We're considering the first major section of the book, the things which you have seen, the setting of Jesus' prophecy. This is the first chapter of this book. Last time we finished the introduction to the book in verses 1 through 8, and tonight we encounter a vision of the exalted Christ, a vision of the exalted Christ. It begins in verse 9 and runs down through verse 20, although, as we will discover tonight, Technically, it doesn't end at chapter 1, verse 20. It goes all the way to the end of chapter 3. But we sort of segment those chapters because of the messages to the churches. But this vision begins here and continues all the way through the end of chapter 3. But we're going to take it as a, as a unit because the description of Christ is here in this passage. Let's read it together. Revelation chapter 1, I'll begin reading in verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. 
His feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is a vision. It is a vision not of our Lord as He appeared on the earth in His humiliation, but it is a vision of the exalted Christ. Now as this vision unfolds, first we see the circumstances that provide the backdrop for the vision, and then the spotlight comes on and turns and pivots, and the focus is on our risen Lord. Those are really the two parts of this section. So let's look at it together. First of all, let's consider the setting of the vision. We see this in verses 9 through 11, the setting of the vision. It begins with the physical setting in verse 9. John begins by introducing himself, giving us his really humble credentials here. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. Three times in the first nine verses, John refers to himself by name in verse 1, verse 4, and here in verse 9. But it's interesting when he introduces himself, you see his humility because he doesn't, inter- he doesn't refer to himself here as an apostle or as a member of the inner circle of the twelve or as the author of the gospel of John. Instead, he simply refers to himself as your brother. There's a clear implication in this introduction, and that is that he wasn't chosen to write this book because he was John, because he was special, because he was somehow personally superior. He's just our brother. But in God's sovereign grace, he was chosen to do this. Notice he also refers to himself as he writes to these churches as your fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. Now the construction makes the point that that John has a share in all three of these realities. So we can take the, the partaker, the fellow partaker, and make it apply to each of those three terms. So first of all, he is a fellow partaker in the tribulation. His point is, I'm suffering the same tribulation that you are. I'm suffering the same difficulties and troubles that result from faithfulness to Christ in a sinful, pagan, wicked world that you're suffering where you are there in Ephesus and Smyrna and the other cities. John says it's the same. I'm a fellow partaker in the tribulation. Then he says, I'm a fellow partaker in the kingdom. Just like those to whom he wrote, John 
currently, when he wrote this, belonged to the spiritual kingdom over which Christ rules now. You understand that the moment you trust in Christ, as Colossians puts it, you are transferred by God out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. The moment you were converted, you became a part of that kingdom. You are in Jesus' spiritual kingdom. But if you are in Jesus' spiritual kingdom now, you will be in his literal kingdom that's coming. And that's also implied here. John says, I'm a fellow partaker in the spiritual kingdom now, and I will with you inherit the future kingdom our Lord will establish on earth, a kingdom he's going to describe later in this very book. And then he says, I am a fellow partaker in the perseverance. This is that word we've met in Romans. It means to remain under. Like them, John says, I have been forced to remain under tribulation, even as I anticipate belonging to that future kingdom. Now, don't miss the the significance of the order of these three expressions. Think of it this way. In this life right now, we experience tribulation as we anticipate the kingdom that's to come. So how do we live in the middle? How do we live in the interim between the nasty now and now and the sweet by and by? The answer is perseverance. Just keep on putting one foot in front of the other. Keep on believing, trusting in God and obeying and doing what you're called to do. Persevere. John says, I'm just like you in that way. I'm experiencing tribulation now. I'm looking forward to the kingdom then. And in the middle, I'm just living in trust in my Lord. Next, we discover John's location in verse 9. He says that he was on the island called Patmos. Literally, I came to be on the island called Patmos. It's an interesting expression because for many years before this, church tradition tells us, and it's, it's It's trustworthy that John had, when he left Palestine, when he left Israel, he had traveled to Asia Minor, to those churches that Paul had planted on his missionary journeys. And there, John lived the last years of his life with his ministry base in Ephesus. He said, I used to be there, but I came to be on the island called Patmos. Patmos is an island in the Aegean Sea, about 40 miles west-southwest of Miletus. You can see on this map where Patmos is, where the red circle is. It's it's a tiny little crescent-shaped island. The two horns of the crescent point toward the mainland. That's where he was kept. You can see if you go east from that circle, you can see Miletus, and that's where the port was for Ephesus, and then you go north and you can see Ephesus and then Smyrna above it and you can see the seven churches in sort of a a half circle. Patmos is a barren, rocky, volcanic island about 10 miles long and 6 miles wide at its widest points. It's about 25 miles in circumference. I've been there and this is what it looks like. This is the harbor that is a natural harbor and was undoubtedly the harbor into which all of the Roman vessels sailed at the time of the first century. By the way, Patmos was a stopping off place between Miletus and points west. And so it was, a, it was a place where harbor was sought, and this harbor was a natural harbor. So when John was brought from the mainland, from Miletus, he would have 
been brought to this natural harbor. This gives you a little further picture of it. It's just a rocky outcropping of an island, a, a little crescent that, that's rugged. According to Eusebius, the church historian, John was exiled to Patmos by Domitian in the year 95 A.D. This was common, by the way. Tacitus, the historian, tells us that Domitian did this often. In fact, he's such a wonderful, lovable guy. He even did so to his own niece. He exiled her to not to Patmos, but to another island. By the way, Patmos is not listed in some of the ancient records. So while it's popular to say that it was a penal colony in the first century, there's no obvious record of that. It seems that John may have been a special political prisoner and sent there to a place where, those, where others were not sent. Now, we can't be sure what John's conditions on Patmos were. Some argue that he lived as a prisoner under harsh conditions, possibly even walk, uh, working in the salt mines without sufficient water, food, and clothing. That's certainly possible. We really don't know. Others argue that his conditions may have been more like Paul's in Rome, where he lived in his own rented quarters but under guard. It doesn't really matter. Regardless, remember, we're talking about a man who is nearly 90 years old, exiled. Why was John there? What were the horrific crimes that he'd committed? Verse 9 says, because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In the book of Revelation, the Word of God often refers to the gospel. It's the Word of God. That is, it's the Word that originated with God. And then he goes on to say, it, it is the testimony of Jesus. In other words, the gospel originated with God, and Jesus testified to that gospel. When? Well, certainly he did when he was here on earth during his earthly ministry, but many commentators believe, and I tend to agree, that he's talking here about John's preaching. Jesus testified through John's preaching. It's interesting. Even in the book of Ephesians, it talks about the Ephesians who never saw the, the person of Christ during his earthly ministry. It says, when you heard the gospel, you heard Jesus. How did they hear Jesus? Through the message preached. And John preached the gospel, and it was testified through him by Jesus. The Roman authorities had apparently interpreted John's preaching of the gospel as seditious. You remember early on, Christianity was considered to be a, a sect of Judaism and therefore was accepted in the Roman Empire. But eventually, it was considered to be a separate religion, and then it became a religion that was off limits because of some of the things I mentioned earlier, and with Domitian, it began to be persecuted directly. And so, the authorities had apparently said the gospel in John's ministry is seditious, and they exiled him to Patmos to marginalize his influence and to thwart the growth of the churches in that part of the world. Now, folks, this is part of what it means to be a Christian. We have lived, during my lifetime, we've lived in a culture where, for the most part, that has not been a reality for us. But it's a reality for most Christians around the world. And we were told by our Lord to expect it. John 16, in the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
Our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world are in prison. They've lost their jobs. Some have been beaten. Some have had their homes destroyed. Their churches have been ransacked and burned. Christians are persecuted. They're hated. Why? Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. But our Lord is faithful. And he either chooses to protect us from the persecution at times, as we see in the New Testament. At other times, he chooses to sustain us in it, as he did the Apostle John in this case. Sometimes he uses it as he did with a man we'll meet in chapter 2, a man called Antipas, who he used it to usher him into the Lord's presence because he was martyred for his faith. But here's the key. Because our Lord is so powerful, whatever course he takes, he always uses it for good. I mean, think about this. From John Bunyan's imprisonment in the Bedford prison, the Christian world got Pilgrim's Progress. And from John's exile on this windswept, barren, desolate island, seven little churches in Asia Minor got revelation, as did the rest of the churches until our Lord returns. Our Lord has a way to overrule the wrath of men to accomplish His purposes. So that's the physical setting. Let's continue and think about the spiritual setting in verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 says, I was in the Spirit. Again, literally the Greek text says, I became in the Spirit. This doesn't mean he became Spirit-filled or some of the other language that's popular for all believers in the New Testament. This was a unique and unusual experience. What John experienced, it wasn't a dream, he wasn't asleep. It, It was more like a trance. Bill Mounts writes, John's experience was a state in which the Holy Spirit replaced normal sensory experiences with visions and voices that spoke to him. Another author describes it as trance-like suspension of normal consciousness. By the way, what Ezekiel experienced in Ezekiel 1 seems to be very similar to this experience. Verse 10 says, I was in the Spirit. He was in this this trance-like state initiated by the Holy Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, scholars have suggested two possible meanings for this expression, the Lord's day. One of them is that it means the day of the Lord. You know, that, that eschatological phrase, that phrase that describes last things. But the Greek phrase that's used here is not the one that's used in the New Testament for that time of future judgment. I have several references in my notes where where that phrase does occur, and it's not this one. The second option is that it's Sunday. The Lord's Day is simply Sunday, the first day of the week. This is the only time this expression occurs in the New Testament. But by the second century, this expression, the Lord's Day, was used commonly by Christians for Sunday. Why? Sunday came to be called the Lord's Day because it was the day on which Jesus was raised from the dead. Therefore, it became the day on which he was worshipped. So John received this vision on Sunday while he was in a a kind of trance-like state produced by the Holy Spirit. Verse 10 goes on to say, And I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. Notice, before John sees anything, he hears. 
he hears a, literally the Greek text says, a mega voice behind him. And it's a voice like the sound of a trumpet blowing. If you're thinking, you remember that even at Mount Sinai, when God appeared, there was the sound of this trumpet that just kept getting louder and louder and louder. Trumpets appear more often in Revelation than any other book, and when they appear, they're usually announcing something solemn, something important. So John hears this mega voice behind him, and the voice was so clear and so unmistakable like the sound of a trumpet. And notice the voice was saying, verse 11, write in a book what you see. This is the first of 12 times in Revelation that John is told to write what he sees. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, A Vision of the Exalted Christ. Tom will have part two for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.